Welcome, everyone. How are you doing today? Excellent. How about online audience? How about you? Let us, let us just know. Scream at us. We can hear you. Sounds about good. That's awesome. Hey, really quickly, if you're here in person, if you want to do me a favor and turn around and look at the cameras at the back and just wave, we can wave to our online audience and just say, hey, thanks so much for being with us right now. Woohoo! We're glad that you're there. Even if you're on a kayak in the middle of the St. Lawrence, we still love and appreciate you. And we're glad that you can join us. We are in part two of our summer series that we've called All in the Family, where we're looking at different character qualities that you and I can can experiment with in our lives, plant into our lives, and live from those places to help us grow in our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. Last week, we talked about trust. What does it mean to to trust other people? How do we grow that? How do we build that together? And today, we're going to talk about love, because a little bit of love makes all the difference. In 2002, I found myself on an airplane headed to Sao Paulo, Brazil, the longest flight part of journey. It was like a a two, three segment flight journey. It was 13 hours. And I just so happened to be on the seat right next to the washroom. And so periodically throughout that flight, I was greeted with a variety of aromas. It was wonderful. 13 hours on a plane. I was headed to work with uh, a group of people that were doing incredible ministry in that area. They were called the chain of love. And this group of people and the Chain of Love Ministry was all about loving orphans in the community. Brazil is a wonderfully beautiful country, amazing people, amazing scenery, but they have a less than awesome experience when how they, they interact with and deal with their orphaned children community. Chain of Love specialized in working with this marginalized people group, and oftentimes they'd find these orphans in a variety of different spaces. See, when you became an orphan in Brazil, you were abandoned. You were left to fend for yourself in so many ways. And so a lot of these groups of kids would form family-type units or gangs, and they'd live in the jungle or they'd live in the, the local garbage dump, anywhere they could be in order to survive and have a future of some kind. I remember this trip vividly for a number of reasons, but particularly because I met two kids all these years later that still impact me to this day. Their names were Linda and Caroline. Linda was found by the executive director of the Chain of Love during one of his dump runs. And instead of being connected with a cluster of other kids, she was actually raised by wild dogs. She learned to walk by holding on the tail of these animals, and they would literally drag her along until her feet were able to catch up to what was happening and the momentum that was generated from this. And I I remember Linda because, yes, she had some developmental delays and some challenges, but her smile would light up the universe. Didn't matter what kind of day you were having, what kind of experience or thoughts you were having in the moment. When you saw Linda, she would light up like a Christmas tree and everything just seemed right. And it's because these people would invite these kids into these environments, these these house communities with, with house parents, and they would love them, and they would invest in them, and teach them a trade, and help them grow, and give them a, a different course trajectory for their future than what society was telling them they were destined for. And Linda was one of those kids. Even on the hot days, like we were doing manual labor down there, helping them with a variety of construction projects. And I don't know if you know this, but this body is not built for that. Okay. 
There's some challenges that I have with a lot of manual labor, especially in plus 35 degrees Celsius weather. And so you were worn out and tired, but you'd see Linda at the end of the day. And it was just an amazing capstone to the day. Caroline was the other girl that I'm reminded of, this other student. And she was about 10 to 11 at the time we met her. Her mom was a prostitute and she used the chain of love as kind of like a daycare. Caroline would be dropped off for sometimes days, weeks, months. And then her mom would circle back and pick her up at some point in time. And the way these men and women would just love these kids, they gave kids like Caroline an option to think about their future differently than what was, was kind of personified for them in their family of origin. A little bit of love makes all the difference. Those are just two of the thousands of kids that have gone through that ministry over the years that have been invested in and grown and developed and loved for who they are. And there's something about love that makes all the difference in the world. In fact, if I asked you right now to think of a memory in your own story where somebody loved you radically or intentionally, I bet you it made a difference to you. It impacted you in some way. We remember when we are loved. We remember when we are hated. And as a people that are pursuing God, we want to be known more for our love than we are for our hate. And so today what we're going to do is dive more into what love looks like in a real tangible way by looking at the story of Ruth. Now, here's the cool thing about Ruth. Ruth is one of two women that have a Bible book named after them. They're the protagonist in the story that is so important for us to understand that they had a whole book dedicated to their story. Now, in our time together today, we're not going to be able to do a really deep dive into the entirety of the book of Ruth. In fact, it's going to look more like a, a blue heron over the St. Lawrence River. We're just skimming the surface and diving in periodically to understand what's going on and see what we can discover all about love. So if you do have a Bible handy, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the book of Ruth. It's the eighth book in the Bible, starting from the beginning, Genesis, all the way, count to eight. You'll get to Ruth, and then we keep it open because we're going to be looking back at it periodically throughout the rest of our time together. This is the first time that we meet Ruth in the story. And just to let you know, I'll set up the couple of verses that I'm going to read. Ruth is not an Israelite. She was an outsider. The Israelites were God's chosen group of people that he set apart from the rest of humankind. He said, I want to bless you so that you could be a blessing to other people. Ruth didn't grow up in that. She was grafted into that community through marriage. There was this uh, a set of parents, Naomi and Elimelech, mom and dad, that they had two sons and they were in a region in Israel and there was a famine. And so they decided to move their whole family to another space where they could farm and things were a little bit easier for them. And they ended up in a region called Moab. And that's where we pick up our story. Ruth chapter one, verses four and five. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malin and Killian died. This, this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. So crisis enters into their story really quickly here. Naomi not only loses her husband, but about 10 years after having these daughters-in-law in her sphere of influence, they too die. Her two sons pass 
away. And so she's left with two daughters-in-law, people that married into her family, no blood relatives in the region that they're living in Moab, and crisis strikes. Because they're in a foreign territory, they're faced with a lot more different challenges than you and I might even be familiar with. See, in this day and age, it was a patriarchal society, meaning that a lot of things happened through the men in the family, land ownership, the ability to work, all those different pieces. And so in the absence of that for Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, they had to make, they had to make a choice. They had to make a choice to go back to what Naomi knew as being familiar or stay with where her daughters-in-law thought was familiar, where they grew up in Moab. And the prospects weren't ideal in either scenario. After a series of conversations, what they decided to do is go back with Naomi to her place of origin outside of a town called Bethlehem. If you're familiar with the Christmas story the Bible talks about, that is the same Bethlehem that it is referring to in Ruth. And so they, they're on this journey back to where Naomi is from, her two daughters-in-law in tow, and they stop and they have another conversation, a revelation moment of sorts. Let's pick it up. Chapter 1, once again, in verses 14 through 16. And again, they wept together. Group of women hanging out, they cry. It happens on occasion, it happens with dudes too. But in this story, it's important to know that this is how they started off this conversation. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. A crossroads moment happens for this band of tra traveling ladies and and Orpah says, you know, she's given the freedom and the invitation by Naomi, as is Ruth, to go back to what they know, their family of origin in Moab, to remain there because Naomi has nothing that she can offer them anymore. There aren't any sons. She's too old to get remarried and have sons and give them away to them in marriage. All these different things. There's seemingly no future. One of them decides to return to what they know. The other decides to move forward with their mother-in-law and adventure into the unknown. Love does that and inspires us to do incredibly crazy things, whether that's jumping out of moving vehicles, getting down on one knee to ask somebody a certain question or anything else. It inspires us to move and live and breathe. It is a powerful, powerful character quality that you and I possess. And there was something inside of Naomi that inspired Ruth to keep going even though she didn't know where it was they were headed. She wanted to stay connected with her mother-in-law. Now, I don't know about you. Like, I've got great in-laws. Maybe you don't have great in-laws. I've got great in-laws, but I'm not certain that I would follow them around the world. I mean, Steve Shirley, I know you're watching right now. I love you. Don't get nervous. Yes, I would, I would follow you partially around the world, but, you know, we'd figure it out. We'd visit each other on occasion, right? Those in-laws, you might have a strained relationship with your extended family. And so to follow somebody into the unknown, there's got to be some driving force behind it all that leads you forward. For me, as I read this story, it's got to be love. 
There's no other explanation outside of love that would invite and inspire Ruth to keep moving forward, keep following her mother-in-law who has nothing to offer her, nothing to offer her. They end up settling in the region of Bethlehem where Naomi is, is familiar with. Her husband has extended family in the region and they're, they're hoping and praying that they're going to have an opportunity to kind of reintegrate into society and into the family and that somebody will give them an opportunity to be cared for. Well, let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's see what's happening as this story continues to unfold. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who is a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. This is the kind of opportunity they were looking for. No, not because they were trying to marry the rich guy or anything like that. They were trying to find opportunity and space for them as, as individuals to survive what was happening. Now, Boaz just so happened to be a, a rich, wealthy, influential man. Here's what that would have meant in that day and age. They would have had, he would have had a lot of land at his disposal. He would have been a landowner, which would farm, they would have livestock. That's the kind of rich that we're talking about. Maybe not in terms of money in the bank, that rich we would think today, or the newest, best boat, or anything like that. We're talking about land and livestock and influence in the culture and in the society. Naomi knows of this individual because he was an, a, a relative of her late husband. And so they're in this region and they're in this space. Because he's a landowner, there would be opportunity for Ruth, at the very least, to work in his fields in some sort. How they harvested their, their, uh, their grain and their produce in this day and age is a lot different than how we do it today in our day and age. In fact, there was a whole system, a structure that was set up for the Israelite community that they were instructed to harvest most of their goods, but not all of it. On the margins and on the fringes, they were to leave some available for people who didn't belong to families, for orphans, for widows, so that they could harvest that grain or that produce and, and have, have a way to be uh, sustained in their challenge and in their crisis moment. And so Ruth starts working in Boaz's fields and doing exactly this, harvesting on the fringes, the stuff that is dropped and left behind. Now, Boaz He's a savvy landowner. He not only understands what's happening in every one of his work environments, he pays attention to who else is on his land harvesting in this way. And he, he starts to notice Ruth, probably because she was, you know, a good looking gal, but more importantly, because of who she was, her character started to shine forth. Maybe he would have gotten reports back from his other paid workers that were working the field saying like, yeah, this, this, uh, this widow and orphan who is working our field, she's, she's easy to work with. She's not demanding. She's awesome. She's respectful. All of those things. He starts to notice her. He starts to understand, hey, there's something more that's happening here. And so he actually gives his workers these instructions in, in verses 21 and 22. And then Ruth passes along this conversation to Naomi, reporting back to her. Then Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter, stay with this 
with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you will be safe with him. Not all the environments that were available to the marginalized and to the orphans were safe. Some of the other fields that they would have worked in, they would have been tormented, tortured, harassed, coerced into things that maybe they weren't prepared for. All sorts of challenges would be facing them. And so Boaz, who starts to notice this lovely gal, is wanting to provide protection and covering and invitation to her in, in his community. He knows if, if she remains in his fields, she will be looked after. She will be cared for. She won't have to face some of the challenging situations she might have to if she was in another environment and space. Do you know what that makes me think of? Us as a church. When people come in and they don't know who we are, they're new to our environment, they're new to our, our space, do they find us to be inviting people? Do they find us to be encouraging people? Do they find us to be people of love, people of care? Or do they find us to be something else? They find us to be, you know, infighting, frustrating, uh, negative people that uh, are, are confused theologically or even just sociologically on how we interact with one another. Do they find us to be people that are projecting something opposite of love instead of love? It makes me think all about that. The first house Bonnie and I ever owned was in a row townhouse situation. It was an end unit. We thought we had won the lottery. It was amazing. It was like inner city Calgary. And we moved into that space. And then we welcomed our first child into that space. It was such an awesome space to begin our adventure into real estate ownership as a young couple and as a young family. I remember about a year, year and a half into living there, we got brand new neighbors a couple of individuals were moving in together and what I originally thought was a mother and daughter, I later found out was a couple. And so I was thinking to myself, oh my goodness, how am I gonna love my neighbors when they find out that I'm a pastor? What am I gonna do? And I was praying about this and I remember the Lord saying to me, don't tell them what you do yet. I said, okay, I can do that. Just love them. Pam and Lorraine were amazing individuals. Pam was so quirky and unique. She loved reptiles. She had Komodo dragons and snakes and a whole bunch of aquariums or reptiliums, whatever you call them, in her house all over the space. And we had this lovely garden that like took up half of our backyard that we thought was so huge and massive, but it was just a small little thing. And we would grow a lot of different produce and vegetables. And I remember Pam coming over on occasion and saying, hey, do you have anything for my reptiles to eat? And I'm thinking, not my children. So why not do greens from my garden? And so, yeah, we had carrot tops and cabbage that bugs it ate and, and that we were going to eat as humans. And we, we actually started growing additional crops just for her, her lizards and reptile friends so that she had that. And we, we were just loving and caring. We'd have barbecues. We'd have conversations in the parking lot. There was a shared parking lot in our backyards. And it was just a fun, awesome experience. One day, I return home from work, and I come into the back gate, and there is Lorraine having a conversation with my wife. And she looks at me, and right away in my spirit, I heard, she knows. And I was like, oh, she knows what I do. Interestingly enough, as Bonnie and I are, are unpacking the conversation that she's have, she had that day, that afternoon with Lorraine, we found out that she used to be a student at, at Briarcrest Bible College. 
a place that she felt drawn to and called to. And as she was there in that space and started to wrestle with her sexuality, what she experienced was something so outside of love that it turned her away from Jesus and away from anybody that was associated with Jesus. And because as neighbors, we just loved and loved and loved and loved them, it really confused her. Because when she found out that we loved Jesus, she was like, but everybody else that has treated me or said that they loved God has treated me differently than you're treating me. So it was a great healing moment and opportunity to speak hope and life. A little later that evening, I'm hanging out in the backyard with Sadie and our oldest daughter. And uh, Lorraine, or sorry, Pam comes, comes into the backyard. And Pam was the more intimidating of the two. And so I thought when she came into the backyard, okay, now this is when I'm going to get it. She's going to lay it on me full tilt. I'm just going to soak it up and, and pray that, that Sadie doesn't remember any words that are going to be said. And she said to me as she walked in, she's like, Jason, I've got two things to ask you. And like really intense. First thing is, how does Sadie speak so well? So Sadie was like not even two at the time, and she was very articulate and just different things like that. And so I just said, Lorraine, you know, we just love to um, read to her lots of stories. And she asked a follow-up question of like, what kind of stories do you read to her? And I said, honestly, her children's Bible. She loves it. To read those stories, as much as, as she is willing to listen, we read those stories to her and with her. And she said, okay, here's my second question. Why do you love us? Why do you love us as neighbors? And she reiterated almost verbatim what, what Lorraine had shared with my, my wife earlier, this hurt that they had experienced. And I just said, I am so sorry that you have experienced anything but love from people that are supposed to be loving because they're connected to a loving God. See, there was something about Ruth happening right here in this story where she was noticed for who she was, but also what she did. And I can't help but think that had to be love. Love does amazing things. Love goes above and beyond. Love puts others ahead of yourself. Love sees past challenging situations and disagreements and finds a way forward together. Even historically speaking, as a nation, we have some deep wounds that need to be healed in the name of love because we've had people do some atrocious things who said that they've loved God all in the sake of trying to expand our community and grow our Canadian culture. I'm referring to our indigenous community, residential schools, all those things. Church was involved. It's heartbreaking. The people of God who said they love God were involved in activity that was not loving. And it's in moments like that where we just have to be honest and real and ask forgiveness and seek rec reconciliation and restoration, just like we had the opportunity and privilege to do with Pam and Lorraine. Ruth is working these fields and she's invited in, in a deeper capacity into the Boaz's territory. And I'm sure they're starting to spend a little bit of time together because the story heats up a little bit. Let's go back to Ruth chapter three, verse one. 
One day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. They have this conversation as mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, and she says, you know, it's time that we get you connected. And from this moment on, the chapter three, it has this longer conversation that happens about how I think Boaz is the guy. And I think he not only likes you, but I think you also like him. So let's see what God is going to do and how he's going to build that. See, in this moment, the only way forward for an orphan or a widow, somebody in in Ruth or Naomi's uh, challenging place that they were, is to find what is called a kinsman redeemer. Somebody that was related to your spouse that had passed, that is willing to take you into their family and and help you uh, sustain and and move forward as as a new entity, but yet being rooted in where you were come from, how you were married into. Here's what that practically means. Boaz or anybody else would would need to be willing to marry Ruth and, and have children with Ruth, and those children would be considered Ruth's first husband's children. Not Boaz's specifically, but Ruth's first husband, so that the name and the family line would continue even through the midst of crisis. So it was a great ask, a big responsibility that anybody who was in that scenario would would be offered or invited into. What we uncover throughout this chapter is that there are two potential suitors, not just one. See, Boaz is aware of another relative that's even closely, more closely related to the family than he is. And so he, he says, he's like, you know what? I'm going to have to have a conversation with this other individual before I step up as kinsman redeemer for you, Ruth, and you, Naomi. And I'm going to make sure that he's okay with me taking that mantle instead of him. So they have this conversation and it all unfolds and and things are left kind of up in the air, so to speak, for Ruth and Naomi. And they're kind of wondering what's going on. It's like it's like trying to find out if somebody actually likes you. And you're like, you know, you, you extend an overture of love and you hear nothing back and you're hoping and praying. And then you start to worry and panic and freak out a little bit. Well, let's pick up what is happening in their lives here in verse 18 of the third chapter. And we'll see what else is is going on. Then Naomi said to her, being Ruth, just be patient, my daughter. Until we hear what happens, the man won't rest until he has settled things today. See, Boaz, just a few verses earlier, has basically committed to Naomi, like, I will get this done and looked after. I will get this taken care of. There will be a way forward for you as individuals, because love does that. In chapter 4, we can see this kind of reach a crescendo. Let's look at verses 13 through 15. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Their story ends in a very hopeful reality. 
And the cool thing is when you trace the genealogy of this particular son that was born, his name was Obed. And Obed ended up being the, the, the father of, of somebody named uh, Jesse, I believe. And then Jesse became somebody, uh, the father of somebody called David. And David just happens to be the most famous king that Israel ever has. And in fact, the lineage of Jesus, the son of God, is traced back through David. This outsider that had no opportunities, no hint of a future after her husband passed away, is now invited to become a part of the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus. Talk about restoration and hope. And all because of love. There are four things that I want to highlight about love that I believe this story just yells at us really specifically. The first is this. Love is patient. Love is patient. It's interesting to me that in no way, shape, or form along this journey do we get a real overwhelming sense of urgency from Ruth. She's not panicking necessarily. She's not extremely worried. And in fact, she's more trusting and patient and being willing to see things unfold. Even after her mother-in-law instructs her to be patient, things will be taken care of. See, a lot of times you and I in our instantaneous culture, we have everything but patience at our disposal. We want it now, we want it yesterday, and we want it again tomorrow. We want, we want, we want. Our hunger leads us forward, not our love. Are we willing to be patient enough to let something grow and nurture, to let a dream that God has given us come to fruition over time? See, we sometimes think that God gives us a glimpse of the future and it's going to happen right in that moment. That's not true. It's not true. It's, it's an invitation that he invites us into. He goes, look where we're headed. Now, trust me, we're going to get there. And along the journey, a lot more is being grown and developed in us. That journey from Moab all the way to Israel, that journey to being a harvester to now being invited into the homeowner's family as his wife, all of that is producing great character in Ruth. In fact, she's known as one of the most influential characters in the Bible in terms of who her quality, the way she lived her life. And that process happened over time through patience. Because love is patient. Imagine if God wasn't patient with you and me. <laughs> like, like, I think I have patience, and then my kids do something that I told them not to do for like the 15th time, and then I lose it. The, the Hebrew phrase is called long-nosed. Biblical Hebrew, when it talks about God being patient, long-nosed, meaning that he, it takes a long time for him to get really frustrated and angry. Does it take a long time for you to get really frustrated and angry? Or is it like lighting a fuse? Boom, I'm going to erupt. Love is patient. Love is patient. Can we be known as a patient people? Waiting for God, expecting him to do things that more than we can ask or imagine. So we learn from Ruth and understand that love is patient. But love is not only patient, love is also kind. Love is kind. There's no way that Ruth gets elevated to this level, gets invited into these spaces if she wasn't kind. Boaz did not have to 
become her kinsman redeemer, her, her way forward. He could have easily said, no, nah, that's beyond my responsibility. And in fact, I don't like you. So see ya. Instead, he doesn't do that. In the book of Romans, Paul writes that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Too many of us think that God is vindictive. God is vengeful. God is just uh, a masochist that's waiting to smack us down the moment we get out of line. And that isn't true because God is love and love doesn't do that. Love is kind. Treating us with a layer of respect and honesty and integrity that we do not deserve. Being patient with us. Love is patient and love is kind. There's a third thing that love is. Love does not envy. Love does not envy. In our culture today, I can't tell you something that is more completely different than what we experience. We walk outside and we see our neighbor that got the next newest boat or sea do and we're like, oh, if only I had that. We look at somebody else and they're married and we're like, if only we had that, we were married. We look at somebody else who is single and we think, if only we had that and we were single. We look at what other people have and we crave it and we want it and we want it for ourselves. But love doesn't envy. If you look at, at Ruth, what is amazing to me is, is there's an absence of complaining. There's an absence of complaining in her life. She doesn't say, woe was me after a 10-year marriage. I didn't do anything wrong and now my husband is dead. She doesn't look at the fact that she's now having to work in the fields. She doesn't look at the fact that she has to leave everything she knows from Moab and, and live in this new environment, in this new space. She doesn't look at the fact that she's got to marry a gentleman that's significantly older than her. She doesn't look at any of that and go like, oh, I wish that I was this and that and the other. She's just thankful in the moment. See, I wonder if you and I practiced a heart of gratitude more consistently. I wonder if, if that would be the antidote to envy. If we could discipline ourselves to celebrate the wins of somebody else, to celebrate the success of somebody else. I've got three sons, and none of them yet have the ability to, to beat me in a foot race. But one of them is getting really close. And by really close, I mean like next week could be that week. I'm going to have a decision to make in that moment. Am I going to play the old man card and say like, oh, well, I didn't have my stretching or the right shoes on, or I, didn't I wasn't able to do this, or it wasn't fair because you, you ran ahead of me? Or am I going to be able to look at him straight in the face and say, well done? It's about time that you beat me. See, sometimes in life, people come around us, God's created them, and they are way more gifted than we are in one area. And we can look at that, and we can be envious, and we can be jealous. Or we can celebrate it. Because our gifts, our talents, our character are not about us. They're about God. When God gifts somebody in some way, it's so that other people can understand and get to know who he is and not celebrate the gift. When we elevate the gift, we miss the whole point. We have to look at the giver of the gift. And God, our Father, gives the best gifts. All shapes, all sizes, all seasons of life. Love does not envy Love does not envy. 
when you and I are faced with a moment where we can choose to want something for ourselves. in that moment where we choose love and celebrate, celebrate somebody else's success, celebrate somebody else's growth, somebody else's triumph. The last thing about love that I believe Ruth just radiates is that love does not boast. Love does not boast. I mean, she came from the lowest of low places to the highest of high places, married to a rich, influential dude. And yet she has a continued realistic opinion of herself, and she does not boast in her newfound position. Back to that gift mix conversation that we had just a few moments ago. When we encounter people that have gifts, when we ourselves have gifts and talents and, and the ability to save and our, our mind to, to map out our future plan and our growth, are we boasting in those things? Or are we boasting in Jesus, the giver of those things, the abilities and the talents, the ideas? There's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. It's okay to be confident in who you are and the way God has made you. But when you're defined by what you can do rather than who you are, that's when we miss it entirely. We miss it entirely. Instead, we have to have this realistic mindset of who we are. A son or a daughter of a king that benefits from who the king is, not what we have done for the king. And from that place, of honor, we get to live and breathe and move. So let's boast in the king and not ourselves. We have done nothing to get us where we are in terms of providing a hope and a future. Well, we can do lots of things to get us other places, but nothing that we can do of ourselves to provide us a hope and a future. And I wonder if we could steep ourselves in those three things, if we could learn to be a people that is patient and kind, that does not envy and does not boast. I can't help but think that that, that sort of starts looking a whole lot more like Jesus. And there's this phrase that we use around Sea Road call, called uh, our mission statement and, and what, we, what we throw around on occasion. We desire to be a, a group of people that loves and lives like Jesus. And if we love and live like Jesus, it's really quite simple. Either we are loving or we're not. There is no middle ground. There is no space that is to be determined. There's stuff that is loving and there's stuff that isn't. So let's make it really easy on ourselves and understand that we have the opportunity, wherever we are, wherever we've been placed, as a parent, as a child, as a, as a coworker, as a member of society, as a resident of Brockville or Gananoque or Athens or Prescott or where else in this eastern Ontario region we might be, or New York State or, or Alberta or Newfoundland or wherever you are tuning in online, you have an opportunity to be this kind of a person wherever you've been placed. To become like Ruth, who is like Jesus in the way that she loved and the way that she lived. And I can't help but think that a whole region is going to be transformed by love because love is powerful. Love, a little bit of love goes a long way. It could reshape our entire mindset, our entire heart set, our entire gamut of priorities.
if we let it. If we choose to be rooted in love. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful that we have the opportunity to be rooted in love. And being rooted in love means being rooted in you because you are love. Lord, I recognize that sometimes we have a a challenging or complicated relationship with you because somewhere along the line, we've believed things that aren't true about who you are. Because some well-meaning individual said something to us that's now stuck in our brains or we had an experience where we, we cried out to you and you didn't show up in the way that we thought you would and now we don't know what to do in that moment. But yet in all of those challenging situations, those crisis moments, you are still God, you are still love and we appreciate that. We celebrate that. But Lord, I'm fully aware that there are people here today in this place or tuning in online that may not yet fully understand or grasp that. I'm still learning more about your love each and every day. So if, those, if there are those that are curious about you that do not yet know you, then I want to I just ask that you would continue to draw them forward in your, with your kindness. I know you've been patient with them, giving them opportunity after opportunity to see that you are a loving and good God. And so, Father, I just ask that that in this moment, maybe this would be the moment that they would find the courage to reach out and grab the hand that is so readily available from you to them. And for those of us who are in challenging situations right now because of of a health diagnosis that we've received or a relational conflict that we find ourselves in, a job situation that isn't ideal or whatever it might be, I pray that we too would look for that hand would look for evidence that love is alive and active and embrace that love and be that love, radiate that love wherever we have been placed. Father, when we're connected to you, we become child, children of a king. And because of that position of honor, we get to experience life to the best version that is available to humankind on this side of eternity. Would you allow us to steward that gift exceptionally well? Allow us to make the most of it so that the love that we radiate from our lives would infuse the lives of all those we come into contact with and they would come to a saving relationship with you. Father, teach us to be a people of love because I am here because I've experienced the reality that a little bit of love goes a long way. And so many of us can say the very same thing. Would you speak and move as you see fit for your name's sake? Amen.